I invite you this morning to turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 9. In case you're visiting today, we are um, doing a series on Paul's letter to the Galatians, and uh, we'll be reading from that afterwards. But the background to that, that records the events that he refers to, is in Acts 9, so we're going to read the verses 1 through 31 together. Acts chapter 9, so these are the very early days of the Christian church. Of course, the church, as it's gathered by Christ, has existed for all of history. But uh, post-Pentecost, these events happened fairly soon after. And the believers were being persecuted by a fanatic Pharisee named Saul. And he becomes Paul later on. He undergoes a name change with his conversion. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to da- into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him, how, show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. 
When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them, how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So far, our reading. Now, our text today, the part that we're going to focus on word by word, comes from Galatians 1, the verses 11 through 24. Galatians chapter 1, the verses 11 through 24. So these are the words of Paul writing to the Galatians where he had previously um, worked and founded some churches. And he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus." Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So far, Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, do you believe everything that you read? That might depend on what it is, you might say. Well, do you believe the news when you read the news? It's kind of a loaded question, isn't it? It's rather difficult to believe some of the things that you 
read today or to trust the news. We expect journalists to report on the news objectively. That means without bias. But that is often not the case. Consider, for example, what happened this past week. Some of you are aware of this. There was a Channel 9 news reporter called Lena Murphy. She was covering a um, rally. And she was holding, she posted a picture of herself holding an offensive pro-abortion sign. While she was on the job, she was supposed to cover this pro-abortion rally and instead she was photographed holding an offensive sign. And she actually posted that sign to her social media account. So it's impossible for someone like that to be objective when they report on this kind of an event. Now sometimes it may seem that many reporters today are not able to be objective anymore. One solution to this is to have an independent team of fact-checkers who check the facts that they report on to make sure that these are reported without bias. But then, of course, the problem becomes who is going to fact-check the fact-checkers? So in the end, you're best off going to the primary sources yourself. But even that doesn't always work. If you have no qualifications in a particular field, like medicine, for instance, your fact-checking is going to be pointless because you don't actually really know what to look for. But generally speaking, your best bet is to go to the primary sources. And in some ways, that's what the Apostle Paul invites his readers to do here. Why does it matter? Because the gospel stands or falls on the historical reality of the events that it describes. Going by verse count, Paul has spent almost, he will be spending almost one quarter of this letter relaying historical details regarding his conversion. Why did he do that? You may remember that after he founded the churches in Galatia, some false teachers arrived. We don't know much about these teachers. But what we can do is read what Paul wrote against them and then uh, try to reason backwards from that and attempt to reconstruct their arguments based on that. And if you then cross-check that with other parts of the Bible, then you can have a bit of a, a compound picture as to what these people were, were about. And it seems they were suggesting that Paul had learned the gospel from the apostles in Jerusalem. It was a little bit of a Johnny-come-lately. He, he learned it from these people that had gone before them. But the false teacher said, Paul did not do a very good job He left out some important bits. And so these false teachers were teaching the Galatians, if you want to become a Christian, that's fine, but you need to become Jewish first. You need to keep all of the ceremonial laws of Judaism, or at least the main ones, like circumcision, Passover, that type of thing. And then you add Jesus to that, and then you can be a Christian. So in other words... It's not just faith in Christ alone that's enough. It's faith plus something that you have to do. In our text this morning, Paul is saying, look, you have this completely wrong. Not only have you misunderstood what the gospel is actually about, but you even have your facts wrong about my life. Let me set the record straight. I want you to know the facts. And so he says in verse 11, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. I didn't learn this gospel from any of the other apostles I didn't even depend on them to legitimize it. I learned this from God himself. 
Here are the facts. You can check them yourself if you want. Well, we'll do that this morning. We're going to consider his words more closely. And in doing so, we will see that the true gospel is not man's gospel. It was not devised by man. It was not legitimized by man. And those are also the two sort of main headings that we'll look at. So first, that it was not devised by man. So one of the first things we should remember is that conversion, true conversion, is not an act of man. It is an act of God. It's something that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. It is just as much an act of God as creation or the raising of the dead, in the words of the canons of Dort. Now, normally we don't see it that clearly because many of us have been raised in a Christian home, right? We were brought up with, with the faith. We, we didn't maybe make it our own right away, but, but the facts of the faith were given to us at an early age. So maybe for some of us, we never remember a time in our life when we didn't believe. But for the Apostle Paul, it was different. The transition to a life of true faith was much more drastic. And it does not make your, your personal conversion any less miraculous. It just means that his was more visible. There was nothing in Paul that made him a likely convert. In verse 13 he says, You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Excuse me. Acts 8 verse 1 says that he approved the stoning of Stephen. And verse 1 from our reading of Acts says that he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And this included men and women. In verse 13 of our text he says, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Imagine that. He sees Christianity, the early church, and he wants to permanently root it out. You imagine that you're having dinner with your, with your wife and kids one day and, and, and then this guy comes pounding on your door with his enforcers and hauling parents away in front of their children. It's horrible. By the way, this is no different from anything that still happens in Muslim-majority countries today. There are many places where Muslims who become Christians can expect a similar treatment, and many of them have. So this is not, this is, and in some ways, this is still current events as well. And Paul himself saw no problem with this. He had no issue with his behavior. He figured there was a biblical precedent for this. Think, for example, of the Old Testament, Numbers 25. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, who killed an Israelite man and a Moabite woman when they were worshiping Baal, a false god. And the Lord approved of that. What about Joshua, who had Achan and his family slaughtered at the, or um, executed for their faithlessness? In Joshua 7, verse 25, you remember the story of Jericho and how Achan stole some of the plunder that was devoted to God, and, and he paid with his life for that. Or Elijah, who had the prophets of Baal and Asherah slaughtered at the brook Kishon. So Paul saw himself in, in that line. He sees no problem with what he's doing. The only thing he had not... Uh, reckoned with was a possibility that maybe God's people, God's true people, were actually the ones he was persecuting. He was fanatic in maintaining the purity of the Jewish faith. Look at verse 14 again. He says, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people 
So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. The traditions of the fathers is not just the Old Testament, which he would have known completely. It was also the oral interpretation of the Old Testament and, and, and the traditions of the rabbis that surrounded that. These were later on recorded in a document called the Mishnah. Well, my digital copy of the Mishnah runs for over a thousand pages. And then you had a commentary on that, which was the Talmud. And there were two versions of that, the Babylonian and the Jerusalem Talmud. And who knows how many pages that is. And Paul knew all this stuff cold. He had mastered it. In Acts 22, verse 3, he says he was educated at the feet of the famous Gamaliel. He was a protege, a star student, a rising star in Judaism. Young man, maybe in his 20s. Full of fire, religious fanatic to the bone, and by the standards of his time, as, as good as you're going to get. As close to perfect as you could imagine. In Philippians 3, verse 6, he says that as far as righteousness under the law goes, he was blameless. In other words, no one could say anything against him. He crossed every T, he dotted every I. The only problem was he was completely wrong. All this time, he saw himself as the defender of true religious purity. Other people saw him as a pillar of orthodoxy. But he wasn't even close all that time. There's a practical warning in here, by the way. It's important to be sincere in your faith. But sincerity itself is not an adequate gauge of truth. It can be really sincere and really wrong at the same time. Paul was really sincere. He also had a high view of himself as a Pharisee. Of all people that he knew, he would have considered himself to be the least wrong. But he was. So maybe in an indirect way, this can serve as a reminder to ourselves not to take ourselves too seriously. If we think that we're a pillar of the church, if we're totally sure that our motives are pure, if other people think highly of us, we should proceed with extreme caution in spreading our opinions because there is always the possibility that we are completely misguided. See, Paul was sure he was right in the eyes of God and then he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus. In our text, he refers to that as a revelation. He says in verse 12, I received it, the gospel, through a revelation of Jesus Christ. In verse 16, he uses that same word again, reveal, revelation. It shares the same root. I was pleased to, God was pleased to reveal his son to me. But the, the revelation was not for himself only. And the word choice here is really interesting. It, <clears throat> excuse me. It, it indicates that he sees himself as playing a major role in God's unfolding work of salvation. And this comes out in the in the structure of verses 15 and 16. And I want you to follow along with me really closely because this is a subtle point, but this is important to, to kind of give us an idea as to what did Paul think about himself here. So um, in verse uh, 16, the actual fact of Revelation, his, his conversion is, is um, tucked away in a number of other clauses, right? Verses 15 to 16, he first talks about he who set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, then he was pleased to reveal his son to me. So, so the revelation kind of comes in the middle of that whole, whole sentence. Um, but that's not what he begins with, is it? 
He begins in verse 15 with referring to God as the one who set him apart before he was born. And the New King James Version, for those of you that are following along with that, is a little bit more literal here. It refers to God as the one who had set him apart from his mother's womb. And in English, that's confusing because it sounds like a physical process, which, which is not actually what, what he means. He doesn't mean that God physically removed him from his mother's womb. What he means is that, that God set him apart before he was born. So although the ESV here um, shows the, the meaning more accurately, it's a little bit of a paraphrase, and in doing so, you miss, you lose something. Um, when, you, when you understand that what he's saying here is that God... Um, uh, set him apart from his mother's womb, then you realize also that this is an allusion to an Old Testament prophecy. Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 6. And Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 6 is one of the so-called servant songs, a description of what the coming Messiah would do. Listen to this. Isaiah 49, verse 1 and 2 says, The Lord called me from the womb, From the body of my mother, he named my name. And then a few verses later in Isaiah, it says, It is too late a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And the same idea comes back in Jeremiah 1, verses 4 and 5. The Lord is speaking to the prophet Jeremiah here. He's not talking about Jesus here. He's talking about the prophet. And he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So what does that mean? It means God has great plans, not just for Israel, but for the nations. He's going to bring the Messiah, Jesus, into the world. And he's going to set him apart. He's going to make sure that he will be preached to all nations to the end of time. And Paul is echoing that same language here. He understands himself to be part of that plan. He was separated from his mother's womb just like these Old Testament prophets. He's echoing that language. The Messiah himself, Jesus, the one that Isaiah was also talking about, is the one who set Paul apart to preach the gospel to the nations. And what this does is it sets this whole discussion on a different level. Because Paul is not just trying to prove himself to some false teachers over in the backwoods of Galatia. No. This is part of something much bigger. If he fails, if the false teachers win, the whole gospel is lost. What makes it so interesting is that he doesn't just refer to this Old Testament prophecy and leave it at that. He shows how the very act of God's calling was also the outworking of the gospel in his own life. God had set him apart before he was born. Obviously, given the Old Testament background, we're talking about him being set apart as an apostle. But before he was set apart as an apostle, he was set apart as one of God's elect one of the people that God chose to give him faith. That's something he shares in common with all believers. If you belong to God, it is because God chose you to belong to him before he even created the world. It's an incredible thought, but it is true. The Bible talks about that in many places. It calls it the doctrine of election, and it refers to it, for example, in Ephesians 1, verse 4 through 5, where it says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So Paul says, God set me apart before I was born. None of the things that he spent so much time on, learning the law, advancing in the traditions of Judaism, persecuting Christians, none of those made any difference in his election. That whole choice had been made long before he was born. And it was true even while he was persecuting Christians. He was not one of them, but he was one of God's elect, and he was destined to become one of them. So don't you see what this means? If you belong to God, then you're one of his elect as well. It means there's nothing that you can do, nothing that you can do to make God love you more than he already does. In fact, he already decided to love you long before you were born. Christ died for you before you were even born. It says that in Romans 5 verse 8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You think about that. You can spend so much time trying to prove yourself. But who are you doing this for? You might even beat yourself up because you feel like you're not where you should be in your walk with God. But none of that makes any difference. Any difference at all in your status with God. It's one of these things that's really hard to grasp, but it is true. God's love is bigger than your past, bigger than your problems, bigger than you. Paul was one of God's elect even while he was persecuting Christians. And of course, that doesn't make his life as a persecutor any less sinful. Sin sin never stops being sinful, regardless of who sins. Sin never stops offending God. Sin never stops grieving the Holy Spirit. But when you come to faith like Paul did, then you see sin in all of its horror, and you want to turn from it, and you want to flee from it. You want to put it behind you. And then you realize that conversion has a beginning, but it has no end in this life. It is the dying of the old nature, the coming to life of the new. And you acknowledge the undeserved grace of God, which is exactly what Paul is doing here. On a sidebar, this teaches us that we do not know who the elect of God are. You might be walking through Mundajong. You might be going about your business in the various shops and establishments that they have around here. Maybe you go to the Mundajong Farmer's Market. You're surrounded by unbelievers, but some of them might actually be God's elect. God is just biding his time, waiting until he calls them. They just don't know it yet. Think about that when you deal with these people. That changes the way that you interact with them. They're not just strangers. They're maybe your future brothers and sisters in the faith. So have, show them some grace and compassion. God, says Paul, called me by his grace. In that sense, Paul was no different from the Galatians themselves. In verse 6, he said, uh, they were called in the grace of Christ. Now in verse 15, he says that God called him by his grace. He called these people out of heathendom. He called Paul out of legalism. He called them both to a life of faith. And that, that shows the efficacy of God's call, the power of his gospel. 
Don't, don't you ever marvel at the work of God in your own life? You ever stop and think about that? Maybe you don't have a big, shiny conversion story. That's okay. Maybe you were raised in the faith. Maybe you made it your own early on. Maybe like we saw earlier, you, you never remember a time when you didn't believe. But your story is no less remarkable than this story, the story of these people. Think about what actually happened there. Think about what the canons of Dort say. I'll, I'll just read a section here. You, you can follow along if you want to. You don't have to. Page 578. In uh, the canons of Dort here. And it says, um, actually, that's page 577, bottom, article 11, how God brings about conversion. God carries out his good pleasure in the elect and works in them true conversion in the following manner. He takes care that the gospel is preached to them and powerfully enlightens their minds by the Holy Spirit so that they may rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God. By the efficacious, that means effective, working of the same regenerating spirit, he also penetrates into the innermost recesses of man. He opens the closed and softens the hard heart, circumcises that which was uncircumcised, and instills new qualities into the will. He makes the will which was dead alive, which was bad good, which was unwilling willing, and which was stubborn obedient. He moves and strengthens it so that like a good tree it may be able to produce the fruit of good works. So he makes the will which was dead alive. And that's called regeneration. And according to Article 12, which follows, regeneration is no less a miracle than creation or the raising of the dead. If you have true faith, this is what happened to you. This, this is not something that was devised by man. Men can't do things like that. The true gospel is not man's gospel. It was not devised by man. It was not legitimized by man either. We're going to look at that next. Verse 16, Paul says, he did not immediately consult with anyone. Why is he telling us this? Well, his basic point here and in the rest of the text is that he did not rely on the other apostles to legitimize his message. He didn't, he didn't run his message past them first to make sure that it was okay. Here again, the New King James gives us a literal translation when it says, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. And the flesh and blood, is, is, it sets up a contrast with spirit. The ESV is more clear here, which is a good thing, but it loses a little bit in the power of that contrast. But the point in the end is that Paul did not rely on mere humans, even apostles, to legitimize his gospel. What's the point of the contrast? Is he suggesting that he didn't need verification by the other apostles? Is he making room for private spiritual experiences as something that is um, normative, that, that, that you have to have? that you have to listen to? It sounds a little bit woozy, doesn't it? A little bit mystical. What's mysticism? It's belief, the belief that you can have a direct knowledge of God without anything in between to hold you back, like Scripture, for example. 
The ultimate goal of mysticism is to become one with God. Mystics are not content with Christ alone or Scripture alone. They want to go above and beyond. Or I should say they are not content with Scripture alone. They probably would see themselves as being content with Christ. But they're not content with Scripture alone. They want to go above and beyond. And that's a denial of the sufficiency of Scripture. Here's a quote from one popular guide on, on, on how to do this. It says, quote, The first step in faith is to stop thinking about God in prayer. Contemplative spirituality tends to emphasize the need for a change in consciousness. We must come to see reality differently. Choose a single sacred word. Repeat the sacred word inwardly, slowly, and often. Enter into the great silence of God. Alone in that silence, the noise within will subside and the voice of love will be heard. End quote. Well, it, it sounds interesting. It sounds very Eastern. It's not that different from meditation and things like that. But the big question is, where do you find this in the Bible? Where in the Bible are we told to, to stop thinking about God in prayer and to repeat a word over and over and then to try to blend our consciousness with God's? Where, where does this come from? And yet a lot of people do this. It's always been a problem in different sectors of the church. Lately, it's become very popular again in some circles of evangelical Christianity, although there is a long Roman Catholic tradition in some circles as well of this. If you go to, uh, to Kurong and you look you know, in spiritual formation, for example, you, you'll find lots of books that you can buy on, that explain exactly how to do this. It's not good. There's nothing in Scripture that justifies this, and in fact, a lot of cults start that way. Somebody gets a vision from God, and now everybody has to listen to him. The problem is, as soon as you take Scripture out of the equation, you lose your bearings. Everything becomes subjective. You can't, for lack of a better term, fact-check it anymore. Paul is not saying that truth is subjective. His conversion was not mystical. His companions, according to Acts, which was written by a different person, Luke, a doctor and a, a scholar, and apparently also a type of journalist. Luke is writing about this, and he says that his companions in the section that we read were aware that something was going on. They heard a voice. They didn't see anything. They were dumbfounded. This is not just a private religious experience. It was not something mystical, but it was miraculous, and that is the point. It was supernatural. That's the point that he's making. His spiritual authority did not derive from the apostles in Jerusalem, but from the gospel itself which God revealed to him. Now, of course, if the apostles of Jerusalem had disagreed with Paul, then he would have been wrong. So he did not depend on their legitimization to be true, but you would not expect him to contradict it either. And they didn't. The gospel he received was the same as what they had, even though he had received it separately, which makes sense because it was based on the same scriptures. He's not trying to suggest that he learned nothing from the others at all, but the point is he didn't depend on them to legitimize his gospel. Instead, it says in verse 17, he, I did not go up to Jerusalem, to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia. Where is that? Well, at that time it was essentially what was known as the Nabataean kingdom. It covered, it covered an area south of Damascus all the way to the end of the Arabian, or the Sinai Peninsula. So, so geographically it makes sense for him to go there. 
He knows his Old Testament a lot better than you and I do, but now he, he, he's, he has to go and he has to rethink everything that he knew in light of who Jesus is. All, all of the questions he addresses in his epistles later on are ones that he probably thought about himself first here. He had to prepare himself. At the same time, the reading does say he started to preach right away. He must have continued to do so in Arabia. But here's the interesting thing. He doesn't seem to have had the results that he had later on. He did encounter lots of persecution. He needed to leave. But no, no results right away. And that can happen sometimes. Sometimes God humbles his servants by letting them labor in obscurity for a while. So we, we can get encouragement from that. The gospel has unlimited power. My brother, elders and deacons, you should remember this too. The, the gospel has unlimited power. It, it will do its work, but sometimes God doesn't let it go right away. And there might be different reasons for that, but one reason might be that he tests our motivation, our attitude, our faithfulness. Eventually, Paul did go up to Jerusalem, but not to legitimize the gospel that he was teaching. He says, um, verse 18, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. I remained with him 15 days. Who's Cephas? Well, it's Peter. Same name, but Cephas is Aramaic. He went up purely for the purpose of visiting Peter. And while he was there, he says he didn't see any of the other apostles except for James. He stayed two weeks with Peter. Can you imagine what they would have talked about? Would have been incredible. Comparing notes, hearing about Peter's life and his experiences. But he was not Peter's student in any way. But now, look at this. If you compare verse 18 of, our, of this letter with verse 26 of our reading from Acts, there appears to be a contradiction. It says in Acts 9 verse 26, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. That implies that there were more there than just Peter and James. Here he's saying he only saw Peter and James. Luke says, well, he, he was brought to the apostles. What are we supposed to make of that? Doesn't have to be a problem. The fact that Barnabas brought him to the apostles does not imply that every single one of them was there at that time. Conceivably, it could only refer to Peter and James. It's also possible that he was, that maybe some of them, maybe more than just Peter and James were there, but that he was introduced briefly to them, but only spent substantial time with Peter and maybe a short visit with James. You know, it doesn't have to be a contradiction. It could just also be depending on how things were in that situation. He doesn't tell us every single detail. But he does tell us, verse 20, that he was speaking the truth and he puts himself under oath. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie, was a, um, a type of an oath in the Roman legal system which had binding power. It was often used to, sell, to settle disputes, arbitration outside of court. And remember... This is, this is probably the earliest letter that we have in the New Testament. I mean, this was written when most of these people were still alive. These Galatians could have fact-checked this anytime they wanted. But he didn't spend much time in Jerusalem. And he says in verse 22, I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. So they didn't have much time to make his acquaintance. Then he went into Syria and Cilicia 
And that fits with our reading from Acts 9, verse 30. Tarsus was the capital of Cilicia. So the ending of this text is beautiful. Verse 23, he says, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And so one more time, Paul lays out this contrast before us of the person he was before his conversion and what happened afterwards. And he puts them really close together and he says, Will you look at this? Look at what happened. Who else could do this but God alone? Who else could take a persecutor and make him a Christian? And look at the splendor of the gospel in verse 24. It says, they glorified God because of me. Who's the they? Well, these are people he formerly persecuted. People who might have lost family members to him. If you would have lived back then, this might have been your sister, your mother, your wife, your husband. It was taken. And yet these people, these Christians that are left, They look at what happened and they glorified God because of me. There's no bitterness, no hatred towards God. They rejoiced. What does it show us? It shows the power of the gospel in their lives as well. There's nothing else on earth that can do that. We spent time today talking about the the historical reality, the events that surround our text That's important because the gospel stands or falls on historical reality. A system like Stoicism or Buddhism would work even if a Stoics or Buddha had never lived. The system itself works independently of them as a system of thought. But the gospel is different. It stands or falls on the historical reality of the events that it describes. And all of it is true. You can fact check it yourself if you want. It stands the test. The, the New Testament alone has been tested and standing for 2,000 plus years. And the Old Testament, of course, much longer than that. It's safe to ask questions. You're not going to break anything. But do remember, the true gospel is not man's gospel. It was not devised by man. It was not legitimized by man. It doesn't need to be legitimized by you to be true either. It doesn't depend on your approval to be believable. And there's a solemn warning in that. It is true whether you believe it or not, with all of its promises and with all of its threats. The Bible is not a book that you can approach and study and analyze in quite the same way as you do with other books. It has a life and a power of its own. Ultimately derives that power from God himself. And you, dear brothers, And sisters should not live without taking him into consideration. Finally, our text reminds us not to be afraid. There are a lot of things wrong with Australian society if you look at it from a Christian perspective. Sometimes it seems things are only going to get worse. They probably will. And it can make us anxious. But we should not be afraid a lot was wrong as back then as well. Greco-Roman society was a profoundly godless, immoral society that abandoned infants that were unwanted, that treated human life as disposable. And Paul himself had a lot wrong with him too. If you would have tried to share the gospel with him before his conversion, he would have tried to kill you. And the day after his conversion, 
He was a changed man. That demonstrates the power of the gospel. The gospel can overcome all things. It can outlast all situations. It can progress through all difficulties. That's the power of God for salvation. Maybe the reason we're afraid sometimes is because we don't really believe that the gospel is quite what it says it is. And you start to doubt and you become uncertain and anxious. Maybe we should remember then that the true gospel is not man's gospel. It was not devised by man. It was not legitimized by man. It is God's work. He has revealed it to us. He is revealing it to the world. One day, his revelation will be complete. His judgments will be accomplished. His purposes will be fulfilled. And you will glorify God forever. Amen.